Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to chsrhealthylife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. chsrhealthylife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. Greetings, or may I say bojo and Potawatomi, to those joining us for today's Indigenous Perspective show. I'm Randy Kritkowski, an enrolled Potawatomi tribal member and the co-host of Indigenous Perspectives. And I'm Carolyn Schmidt, the other co-host. Indigenous Perspectives originates from Vermont in the United States. We're located on lands that the Abenaki people call Indakina. This is the unceded traditional territory of the Abenaki, who for thousands of years have been stewards of the land found here and also across the border in Quebec province in Canada. Today's show is the first of two focusing on Black Elk, a religious leader whose life embodied and transcended the challenges of being on the front lines of conflict between the traditional indigenous cultures and the Christian cultures of the mainstream newcomers. Black Elk was known by his people, the Oglala Lakota, as Hehaka Sapa. He was a Wicasta, Wakan, medicine man, holy man, who lived through the turbulent times during the Lakota struggles for their land and culture. He was born in 1863 and lived until 1950. He was a cousin of Crazy Horse, fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn, and you're going to learn much more about him in a moment from our guests. This show and our next show will examine who Black Elk was and how he reflected and also shaped his times. Black Elk is fascinating as a unique human being, a religious and political leader within his own society, and also is a focus of mainstream American attempts to take possession of and control of his life story. Today's guest, Damian Costello, is an international expert on the life and legacy of Black Elk. Damian's book is titled Black Elk, Colonialism and Lakota Catholicism. Damian specializes in the intersection of Catholic theology, indigenous spiritual traditions, and colonial history. He has a PhD in theological studies from the University of Dayton in Ohio. He is director of postgraduate studies and a member of the faculty of NATES, the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. In addition to his book on Black Elk, Damien's work has been published in the National Catholic Reporter and in America Magazine, the Jesuit Review of Faith and Culture. He also appeared in a documentary, Walking the Good Red Road, Nicholas Black Elk's Journey to Sainthood. So, Damien, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here with you. So, Damien, could we begin with a very, we could begin with a very traditional historical biographical introduction of Black Elk. That's the way such shows usually start. But in the spirit of these two shows, 
we'd like to begin by having you talk about your own personal journey of discovery. After all, Black Elk has a way of being more than a mere historical figure and a black and white photo. He can become a spiritual presence that reaches people today. Can you pick up that theme and run with it? Oh, I sure can. I, I feel he was a spiritual presence that, that reached me. Um, it was probably about exactly 28 years ago. I was a sophomore at a small Catholic school in Maryland, and I was in the library avoiding work. I had a really tough semester, and I pulled a book off the shelf, Black Elk Speaks, and proceeded to read that um, cover to cover in the next day or two, and it totally captivated me. Um, it gave me voice um, for a lot of the issues that I was struggling with and learning about, you know, a very complicated history and the, the suffering of the world. And it just so happened that that summer I had an older friend who was moving to Seattle for graduate school. And he said, Damien, come along. You can you can come with me. And so we drove through South Dakota, through Badlands, Pine Ridge, the Black Hills. And it might have been actually at Mount Rushmore where I picked up an audio version on cassette tape way back in the nineties, still using those cassettes. And so I listened to it on that very landscape. And, and again, just um, black elk story captivated me. And I felt like I was walking along with him. Well, that fall semester, I took my first theology course and I, I had the book with me and I walked in at some point and the professor saw it and said, Hey, Damien, what a great book, huh? And I, did something like I just did now and, and told him all about it. Oh, yeah, it's such a great book. And he said, do you know that he was Catholic? And I had no idea. Like I had heard of St. Kateri, um, the, the Mohawk saint. So I had a sense that that Native peoples could be Catholic, but I had no context for for a, um indigenous holy person, a spiritual leader becoming Catholic. What could that possibly mean? Um, and so... He suggested I do a senior project on that, and so I did. Spent my whole semester reading everything about Black Elk, and um, that was the way he really became part of my life and has never let go of me. I love the theme of your finding just by, quote, accident Black Elk on a shelf, because so often these encounters seem to be serendipitous, but... They keep happening over and over, and one does begin to wonder after a while if it's just accidents that are taking us back, or as you said, and I said in my intro, if some historical figures and people have a, a way of taking up a presence in our lives. Can you just back up? I introduced him as a medicine man, and can you kind of flesh that out a little bit for listeners who might not know what that actually entails in, um, you know, in Lakota society and in Native American communities? Medicine people um, filled the role, multi multifaceted role of of healing, spiritual leadership, um, often what we would say political leadership as well. In the Lakota context and many indigenous contexts, the main aspect of that tradition was singing. They would sing over their patient, uh, oftentimes all night or in other traditions, multiple nights. And the power of that of the song um, bridged the the spirit world and this world here and allowed their spirit helpers to um, doctor the patient. And so Black Elk's call to become a medicine person stemmed from a, a, a really important vision he had at the age of nine, probably the most famous vision 
in all of uh, indigenous history. So this is probably a good time for you to tell us more about his great vision, because I know it resonated with him throughout his life. It's incredibly powerful. Um, so if you could just start off telling us about it, that would help. Well, I think it resonates with the readers as well and people who discover Black Elk. I think that was the thing that captivated me the most, right? The possibility that somebody could have such a dramatic and overwhelming spiritual encounter that was beyond any sort of uh, questions that we might have in everyday life. In, in his case, he was nine years old. He was following the buffalo with his people. It was summertime, and they stopped um, his friends to get a drink of water. And when he went to get back up, he, he found he couldn't stand. And so they called his family over. They set up a teepee, and Black Elk uh, went into a coma. They thought he would possibly had died. But what Black Elk remembered was getting uh, the call he had been receiving for uh, now a couple years. Uh, a sacred voice is calling you. There were these these voices calling him. He didn't know what they meant. They scared him. Um, but this time when they called, he got up. He went outside, and two men descended from the sky with wings. And there was a little cloud. He got on it and was lifted up into the sky world where he was brought to the cloud teepee of the six grandfathers. Um, who in the Lakota way represent all the powers of the universe, the six direction, six sacred directions. Well, they proceeded to tell him that he was called to renew his people. They gave him a number of gifts and sent him on two long journeys, one down the um, dangerous black road and the sacred red road. And so on the, the black road, he defeated drought in this dramatic battle, goes on for pages. And then on the sacred red road, he led them to the sacred hoop where there was a flowering tree at its center. And there, his people and all of creation, and it turned out all the peoples of the world were renewed. So after 12 days, he was sent back down to earth. He woke up. People were understandably, understandably astounded. And Black Elk kept this to himself. He didn't tell anybody. He was, again, very scared and um, hid that for the next eight years of his life about. So I was astounded when I first read of this to realize that when he finally revealed his vision to his community, you know, it wasn't greeted with open arms. Oh, tell us more. The first question that his parents had and went to the medicine man with was, can you talk to him? We're trying to figure out, I think they actually used some equivalent in Lakota of the word, is he having a hallucination? And it's easy for Westerners, non-Indigenous people, to think that Native Americans are credulous. You know, any kind of story or vision, you know, they're going to believe it. But not so. He, he was scrutinized. And this is a common part of Indigenous life and Lakota life. Can you, can you pick up that and run with that? Because that's going to take us forward to how he's being vetted now for possible sainthood. You know, this is a complicated process. Of oh, it's such a great point and something that it, it, newcomers like I was uh, often don't see, as you point out, like we are captivated by these images and the, the idea that Native peoples are just, they're so close to nature and the spirits and, and they have this sort of direct conduit um, 
that you can take at face value. And in Lakota tradition and, and many, probably all indigenous traditions on some level, these are experiences that are um, vetted and discerned in community. So typically you would have been prepared by the elders. You would have gone to sweat. They would have counseled you for your vision quest where you went up to a isolated place for at least a day, but as many as four days and you prayed and fast asking for a vision and then you were brought back. And if you did say you had a vision, well, they sort of tested you and they also helped you to interpret what you saw because these are big dramatic um, manifestations of the spirits, right? The, the word vision is, I think, also a complicated term to use because it puts us, you know, people in a Western context with this idea that, you know, our vision doesn't always, um, it fools us sometimes, or we can explain it away from like sort of a scientific or a rationalistic perspective. These are first and foremost, from an indigenous perspective, a manifestation of spirits. And if you are believed to have encountered them, there's no explaining it away with comas or, you know, any other, other sort of explanation. But it's done in, in partnership. And so in back to Black Elk, um, his parents didn't know his, because he hadn't talked about this experience. And they needed that help. They did. They asked, is our son going crazy? I think is one way they put it. Well, this is really interesting because from on many levels, we talked with uh, an expert on Mongolian shamanism a while ago on this program, and she made the point that the pattern for Mongolian shamans is that there's a period where they're feeling a, a tug and a pull and they're resisting it, you know, and then they have various experiences and everything else, but they're resisting it. They don't just think, I'm oh, just, they don't just anoint themselves. You know, they actually resist it. And the community evaluates their behavior. You know, are they doing this selflessly? Are they willing to sort of surrender enough to make this connection? And so it's a very, again, I see similar patterns with this whole idea of how you do, how you do have a genuine encounter with a spirit world and how you, how the community vets it in a way. Another thing that just, when you first encounter this, as I did, um, you know, these sort of starry eyed non-native people often show up in, in native communities, um, with the assumption that you can sort of create that calling, like you, maybe you have that feeling and you greatly desire it. So many people out there have that desire, but it's a very strong theme in Lakota tradition and, you know, a lot of religious traditions across the world that if you don't have a calling, don't ask for it. It's a very demanding, um, very demanding life that will ask a lot of you. And it's a very big part of the tradition to avoid it very directly um you know i know of one traditional healer who avoided his call for 25 years and they say at least some people lakota people say if you don't accept your calling you will be required to give up that which is most important for you so it is this complicated uh tug back and forth of resistance of calling of communal vetting 
and uh, oftentimes just getting to a point where you cannot resist that call anymore. And that's what happened to Black Elk. He was completely broken down as an adolescent, as a 16-year-old, before he finally surrendered, so to speak, to the spirits. So we, we should explain to the listeners who might not know the details of American colonial history and certainly not Lakota history, that these were incredibly turbulent times for the Lakota in particular. They had been previously, not in immediate history, but, you know, in a generation, they had been forced out of their homeland. You know, they, they, they were not residents for eons in the, the the upper Midwest, they had come out of Ohio. They'd been relocated to a strange new land. And then they were attacked repeatedly. I mean, Black Elk was at the Battle of Little Bighorn with, with his cousin. And then he survives the um, horrific ambush and massacre of, of Wounded Knee. Mm-hmm. So these are people who were starving from winter to winter. They were promised rations by the federal government. They didn't come. Their very existence was in peril. And here's this young man who's given a vision that basically instructs him to save his people. That has to be intimidating. Oh, you talk about a burden. And I think part of the the draw of Black Elk is that his life in so many ways uh, personifies that bigger story you're talking about. So he was at the Battle of Little Bighorn as a 12-year-old where you said his cousin, his second cousin, Crazy Horse, fought. And Black Elk finished off a couple soldiers uh, who were wounded. He ended up um, after that, after the U.S. Army, you know, tripled the war effort and shattered Lakota resistance. He went to to Canada with Sitting Bull for four years, four very, very difficult years of of intense cold and, and starvation. And it was when they when they surrendered his family and had to walk back the 800 or so miles uh, with only two horses, so they were walking the whole way, surrendered to the U.S. government. That's when he surrendered to the spirits and told his vision. The, the medicine man came over, vetted it, and then they recreated the whole vision in ceremony, right? A uh, very important uh, theme in Lakota tradition that you must respond to the spirits with ceremony. That's how they understand and that you are are listening and hearing and activating the gifts that they have given. And so the whole village got together uh, and they, they recreated the sacred red road, the people on their journey, the six grandfathers. And after that, Black Elk was a medicine person from the age of 16. Well, he, he choreographs this performance, which is, it's mind boggling. There are dozens of horses and then there's a thunderstorm coming to disrupt the whole thing, and Black Elk intervenes. And according to witnesses, the, the thunderstorm comes to the edge of the performance space, and it stops. I mean, this, is, this isn't just theater. This is ceremony and, and, and revelation to the community that is absolutely mind-boggling, and it, and it must have affected him deeply. So is, is the basic idea that out of all this tremendous change and suffering um black elk is called and steps into like a a a vacuum of of power and belief and sense of what the world is like i i think vacuum might be a bit strong of a word but you're on you're capturing i think the the sort of raw existential turmoil that's occurring and the unanswered questions about, you know, what is Lakota society 
and spiritual life kind of look like going forward as these things changes and their economy and everything else. And so black elk as somebody who is a medicine person, but also has this bigger call, like in his, the language of his vision and how he talks about it, he always understood that he was called to something more than just healing individual people, that he was called to heal his people and on some level, on a cosmic level. And so he's always trying to discern that. And, you know, it's, I think when you first come to this as an outsider, you've just sort of assumed Lakota tradition is static. It's just one thing that's always been there. But Lakota spirituality has been changing and evolving in a very positive way for a long time. You know, when they, before they were on the plains, they didn't practice the Sundance and Black Elk himself and the Sacred Pipe, the other important book that's attributed to him, tells a story of where that came from. It came from a vision when the people were becoming weak in their new life on the plains because they, they did not connect with the spirits in the same way. They needed a new ceremony. And so that was gifted. So um, back to your point, that's where they are now. They're transitioning, unfortunately, but the reality was they were transitioning from their, their life on the plains as buffalo hunters into this reservation space. And so the question is, what new ceremonies are needed or what ser- how can the ceremonies be renewed in order to make the people live, which was the essential prayer of Lakota spirituality. So let, lest we lead the listener with the impression that, you know, it's down and out times for the, the Lakota and their mere victims of colonialism. I want to remind the reader, and we'll explore this in the next segment. The beauty of your book is you flip the normal narrative of Native Americans as mere um, victims of colonialism. And you explain how this revitalization of which Black Elk is a leading part takes elements of the new culture, blends it with Lakota culture and ceremony and creates something new. That's what I love about your book. Okay, we'll be back in just a few minutes with segment two. Rights for nature? Around the globe, indigenous communities, governments, and environmental groups are realizing that human rights aren't enough to protect the planet. They're passing laws that recognize rivers, forests, and mountains as having rights of their own, rights that include the right of those ecosystems to exist and flourish. These actions are beginning to make a real difference. Find out more about this work by visiting the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights webpage at Center for Environmental Rights. Period poverty. If you don't know what it is, you should because you can help. One in four American women struggle to purchase menstruation products this year, resulting in missed school and even loss of income. The Native American women's nonprofit, Quek Society, cares enough to give Native American students and communities their period products, and they do it across North America. Please help women with your time, donations, or supplies to maintain their dignity and celebrate their strength during moon time. Visit QuekSociety.org. That's K-W-E-K Society. Listen up. 
The source for information and inspirational items about the struggle and wisdom of indigenous people is the Syracuse Cultural Workers. They are committed to peace, sustainability, social justice, feminism, and multiculturalism, and they create beautiful visual materials like calendars, t-shirts, cards, and more, including their greetings and thanks to the natural world, according to poster that offers daily grounding for our relationship to the earth and its many fellow beings. Get so many wonderful items. Go there now. SyracuseCulturalWorkers.com Randy Krakowski's book, Without Reservation, describes his spiritual awakening as a Native American. It's powerful, life-changing story where Randy shares his journey into the realm of ancestral Native American connections and explores his encounters with Mother Earth. The book actually helps you how to reconnect with your ancestors to rekindle your access to ancestral wisdom and nature. Available in print, ebook, and audiobook format, Get Without Reservation by Randy Krakowski from all major booksellers. For more information, visit Randy Krakowski. Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Cultural Heritage Center, located near Shawnee, Oklahoma, features 11 immersive galleries with digital and interactive exhibits. Visitors learn about the tribe's history from origin to modern days and gain an understanding of Citizen Potawatomi oral traditions and lifeways. Admission is always free. Open Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Visit the Cultural Heritage Center on the web at PottawatomieHeritage.com. Welcome back to our Indigenous Perspective show on Black Elk with our guest, Damien Costello. Damien, we ended the last section talking about the resilience and the creativity of Black Elk and his community. But before he engaged in some remarkable developments of ceremonial resilience and spiritual resilience, he took quite a detour in his life. Can you talk about that? Well, so he he came back to Pine Ridge. He spent, I think, a year or two as a traditional healer trying to make a life in a very difficult situation um, and had this opportunity to see the world. So Buffalo Bill Cody shows up to Pine Ridge and started recruiting for performers to join his show. And a number of Black Elk's friends signed up and encouraged him to. You could make good money. You made a very good wage compared to your your uh, family members on the reservation. Uh, you got to see the world. And you got to inhabit your culture in a public way. It was a, a very big irony. Like on the reservation, you're starting to be persecuted. Cut your hair. Don't speak your language. Stop doing Indian things. And here you are at the center of these the biggest cities in the world doing that publicly and being celebrated for it. So Black Elk signed up. And he also said this was a spirit, part of his spiritual journey, that he very intentionally wanted to go see the white man's world from the inside to see if there was anything of good to bring back to his people. So this was an extension of his spiritual calling. So he goes and he spends three years, uh, lots of ups and downs. He gets lost, separated from Buffalo Bill, ends up with another show, falls in love. And this whole time, he and the other performers are investigating the white man's spirituality. You know, there's all these great snapshots of these Lakota people showing up and other native people showing up at churches and talking with ministers. One of them 
it was a wife of a minister in Scotland who said their their appetite for hymns is insatiable, that they wanted uh, these new hymns copied down so they could take them. And they went to Westminster Abbey, uh, 40 performers, and stunned the congregation by singing the the Protestant hymn, probably the most popular one at the time, Nearer, My God, to Thee, in Lakota. It had been translated into Dakota in Minnesota and had went ahead of the missionaries. People picked up on this hymn, Lakota, Dakota, Lakota people, speaking people, because it seemed to have given them some new uh, language to talk about, particularly death. Anyway, Black Elk came back after three years and after about six months wrote a letter to the Lakota people and described his experience. And he said, you know, the white man's way is incredibly difficult. Um, I didn't find anything good other than some of these ideas about God. And so he quotes 1 Corinthians 13, which is um, this long extended passage by Paul about love. He says, that's how I want to live now. Right. And I think, you know, it's easy for Christian people to pick up and say, oh, Black Elk discovered something totally new and now he's been forever changed. And it should be emphasized that, no, he's this love and compassion were incredibly important parts of a culture tradition. But what I think did happen is he had a slightly new perspective on it. And I think that perspective was it gave him a new way to understand his enemies, outsiders. Tribal religions, spiritualities are very good for um, connecting you to people within your tribe, but don't typically talk about those outside them. And I think that's what Black Elk saw in that those new spiritualities. As a as a youth, he was taught that it was not only proper but necessary to kill anyone who does not speak the tribal language. They are mm-hmm. others. So he's repudiating this tribal wisdom, this tribal custom, um, and accepting a, a point of view that for the time would have been radical. And I'm sure put him in an awkward position more than once when he was promulgating this notion. Well, I'd like to jump in also and mention a part of your book that I thought was really strong was when you talked about the importance of language and oral culture in the role of the early Jesuit missionaries meeting with and talking with and attempting to convey their religion to the Lakota, among other indigenous peoples. And what the Jesuits did was they learned Lakota. They not only translated their holy texts, hymns into Lakota, but they also spoke with the people could talk with the people in their own language. This is huge as far as making a connection. And I think that's a really important point about the effectiveness of a a two-way communication going on. And it should be emphasized that this sort of seeds ground or, you know, sort of uh, philosophical and spiritual territory to Lakota, even in ways that the missionaries probably didn't understand. So they're using the same language or similar language that Lakota people would use for their own ceremonies and prayers and songs and traditions, it is inevitable then that that understanding flows into the ideas that the Jesuits are trying to pass over to the Lakota people. So 
Christian theology, Catholic theology, is inherently going to have deep, deep Lakota meaning and resonance and allow Lakota people to sort of have the upper hand in interpreting this. You know, no matter how well you learn to speak a foreign language, it's always foreign. And native speakers are going to have the upper hand. One, one of the passages that moved me deeply when I came across it from 17th century Jesuit journals was one Jesuit who was trying to deal with this whole question of, are these um, Native American me medicine men, are they tricksters? They actually use the word jongleur in French, which means juggler or trickster. And, you know, he, he inventories all the different kinds of actions and ceremonies. And then he said, and then there's this category of where what they're doing really happens. It's for real. And in, in this case, what happened very often with the Jesuits is they didn't just translate the words. They actually began to entertain the possibility that the spiritual realm of the Lakota was a reality, not a quaint thing for ethnographers to put onto paper, but there was something of real substance there. So I, you're describing the, the creative tension that happens at this interface. And in the context of, of today where we have residential schools, things have been brought forward that are very important to, to deal with and, and take at face value. It's hard for us to, to grapple with the idea that there was this deep sort of interpenetration at times and understanding in ways that we have a hard time conceptualizing. Okay. Well, Damien, thanks so much. And we'll be back with segment three in just a minute. Stay tuned. Rights for nature? Around the globe, indigenous communities, governments, and environmental groups are realizing that human rights aren't enough to protect the planet. They're passing laws that recognize rivers, forests, and mountains as having rights of their own, rights that include the right of those ecosystems to exist and flourish. These actions are beginning to make a real difference. Find out more about this work by visiting the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights webpage at Center for Environmental Rights. Org. Randy Krakowski's book, Without Reservation, describes his spiritual awakening as a Native American. It's powerful, life-changing story where Randy shares his journey into the realm of ancestral Native American connections and explores his encounters with Mother Earth. The book actually helps you how to reconnect with your ancestors to rekindle your access to ancestral wisdom and nature. Available in print, ebook, and audiobook format, Get Without Reservation by Randy Krakowski from all major booksellers. For more information, visit Randy Krakowski. Com. Located near Shawnee, Oklahoma, citizen Potawatomi Nation is Potawatomi County's largest employer with a rich history and culture as a sovereign native nation. Learn more about CPN by visiting its website, which includes information on services for members, tribal enterprises, government and constitution, the newspaper, and much more. All at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. 
period poverty. If you don't know what it is, you should because you can help. One in four American women struggle to purchase menstruation products this year, resulting in missed school and even loss of income. The Native American women's nonprofit Quek Society cares enough to give Native American students and communities their period products, and they do it across North America. Please help women with your time, donations, or supplies to maintain their dignity and celebrate their strength during moon time. Visit QuekSociety.org. That's K-W-E-K Society.org. Don't get angry. Anger is a negative emotion that suppresses your immune system that may cause health problems. Make a positive difference by working together to protect and support your family, friends, and community. Take a break from the dark side. Uplifting and enlightening. Listen to the Positive Side of Podcasts. HRNRadio.com So we're back with our guest, Damien Costello, and we're going to pick up the narrative of Black Elk, whom we left in Europe, and he's now returning to the United States after his time abroad with the Wild West Show and investigating um, you know, the institutions, particularly religious institutions, of the colonizers. And what, what, what greets him when he comes home, Damien? What, what, what opportunities, challenges are there? Well, the, I think the first challenge that he he faced was just the um, the change in pace and being back on you know a very remote part of the world and being separated. Like one thing that U.S. government did very intentionally was to spread the people out. You know, Lakota people, most indigenous people, were used to living very close communally in the communities of Pine Ridge and other reservations. The the cabins are are spread out, so people can't interact in the way they're used to. Uh, but he got a job at a a small store because he spoke some English, so he worked there part-time, and he came back to his healing practice. When he was away, he said his power had left him, that the, the spirits were not with him. It didn't apply where he was in a different land um, with different people. But when he returned, it came back, and so he continued his healing practice. And he also got news of the ghost dance. He had told the people in that letter he wrote that he had hoped to go to the Holy Land he wanted to go see where Jesus lived so that he could sort of see for himself. And he's always actively investigating. He has to see for himself. But he couldn't go because it was too expensive. And so this is one of these great coincidences that, that happens in his life so often. Jesus came to him, right? The ghost dance was the, the message was that um, the white people had killed Jesus. And he had given a vision to Wavoka the Paiute holy man in Nevada, that he was coming back as an Indian this time. And that by dancing this new dance, by singing these new songs, by working the jobs that you could have, by sending your kids to school and by going to church, he said that, that going to church and dancing the new dance were like two churches, that a new world would come, the new heaven and new earth, the buffalo would come back, that the dead relatives would come back and things returned to the way they were. And so Black Elk was confused by this. He didn't know this is a new teaching. He was a little bit skeptical, so he went to investigate. And he said, well, it does kind of look like my vision. It was a circular dance around a, a pole, like a tree figure. And he said, well, I'll give it a shot. So he, he starts to dance, and almost immediately, 
one of the first days he was dancing, he fell down and had probably the last major vision of his life. He was lifted up into the air over the promised land, he said, and he came to a tree with 12 men around it and a man with long hair and an eagle feather in it with pierced hands and pierced feet. He said, everything has been given to, to me by my father, and you must say this. And Black Elk interpreted that as uh, the ghost dance messiah, Wanikia, he who makes live. And he became a prominent leader in the ghost dance and was with them uh, in the great battle of Wounded Knee that occurred not too, mo- too long after that. Now, the, the dominant authorities, the, the colonists, the federal government, state government, didn't exactly welcome this dance, did they? Not in South Dakota or, or North Dakota. They did in Oklahoma. In fact, there was, you know, reports of like the army being like, wow, this is kind of interesting. It'll help the Indians convert to Christianity. They could see the Christian influence, but up north, they just could not interpret anything that natives did that was in the old ways or resembled the old ways as anything other than rebellion. So they called in the army and, and uh, Custer's old regiment. And on December 29th, a band of refugees um, coming from Standing Rock were, were ambushed and about 250 men, women and children were killed. Now, Black Elk, he wasn't at the initial massacre of Wounded Knee, but he showed up and fought in the aftermath and was wounded and says he wanted to die. He was shot in the stomach. They tied him up with a blanket, and he said, I wanted to charge out there. I wanted, I didn't want to live anymore. And an elder held him back and grabbed him and said, no, nephew, we need you that we may live. They sensed that power in him, and so he was saved. So this this is another transformational moment for him. And correct me if I'm wrong, he's still continuing to practice his medicine healing role, correct? And then there, there is, and, and we're going to talk about on the on the next show, there is an enormous controversy surrounding his, there's no other way of putting it other than his collision, alleged co- collision with a Catholic priest who comes in and interrupts him in the middle of a medicine ceremony and thereby hangs the rest of the tale, which we'll get to in the next show. But do you want to fill in that part of the biography? Because it is a a critical point for the historical narrative. So Black Elk, after Wounded Knee, there was this period of just total shock for everybody for maybe a year. But, But the Lakota people were incredibly resilient. They picked up the pieces and they continued on. And Black Elk did the same. He married a survivor of from Wounded Knee, and they had uh, some children, I think three boys at that point. And he continued his medicine practice. Now, that's one of the few jobs you had, roles you could play that you could make a decent living. Um, but something interesting happened. It seems his wife became Catholic and had their boys baptized now we'll get into more of this uh later on but there were only a couple things you could do that would really really set off any sort of authority outside um authority figure on the reservation not indigenous people and those two things were dance which we saw what happened with wounded knee and the other thing was start curing people you know Outsiders have no conceptual framework to, to understand this. This was the time of, you know, so the height of scientific rationalism. And so whether you were clergy or a scientist, an atheist, military officer, that curing stuff is just unacceptable. 
And so it seems as if Black Elk is on a collision course uh, with the Catholic Church. So a, a, a priest actually allegedly intervenes in, in one of these ceremonies and drags Black Elk off, allegedly, correct? Allegedly. Um, I don't want, you know, I don't like overqualifying it too much because um, while there is good reason to think that this story is embellished or um, not seen as uh, dramatically overpowering as, as we feel it now, it is true to what a lot of people report being their experience. So I just want to make that clear. But it seems that in the aftermath, Black Elk willingly went with this priest to Holy Rosary Mission, which is now Red Cloud Indian School, stayed there for a couple of weeks, and was baptized on December 6th, the end of that, which is the Feast of St. Nicholas, and thus took the name Nicholas Black Elk. Okay, so we'll pick up another incredible turn in Black Elk's life in our next segment. Back in a minute. Rights for Nature Around the globe, indigenous communities, governments, and environmental groups are realizing that human rights aren't enough to protect the planet. They're passing laws that recognize rivers, forests, and mountains as having rights of their own, rights that include the right of those ecosystems to exist and flourish. These actions are beginning to make a real difference. Find out more about this work by visiting the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights webpage at centerforenvironmentalrights.org. Period poverty. If you don't know what it is, you should because you can help. One in four American women struggle to purchase menstruation products this year, resulting in missed school and even loss of income. The Native American women's nonprofit Quek Society cares enough to give Native American students and communities their period products, and they do it across North America. Please help women with your time, donations, or supplies to maintain their dignity and celebrate their strength during moon time. Visit QuekSociety.org. That's K-W-E-K Society. Listen up. The source for information and inspirational items about the struggle and wisdom of indigenous people is the Syracuse Cultural Workers. They are committed to peace, sustainability, social justice, feminism, and multiculturalism, and they create beautiful visual materials like calendars, t-shirts, cards, and more, including their greetings and thanks to the natural world, according to poster that offers daily grounding for our relationship to the earth and its many fellow beings. Get so many wonderful items. Go there now. SyracuseCulturalWorkers.com Randy Krakowski's book, Without Reservation, describes his spiritual awakening as a Native American. It's a powerful, life-changing story where Randy shares his journey into the realm of ancestral Native American connections and explores his encounters with Mother Earth. The book actually helps you how to reconnect with your ancestors to rekindle your access to ancestral wisdom and nature. Available in print, ebook, and audiobook format, Get Without Reservation by Randy Krakowski from all major booksellers. For more information, visit Randy Krakowski. Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Cultural Heritage Center, located near Shawnee, Oklahoma, features 11 immersive galleries with digital and interactive exhibits. Visitors learn about the tribe's history from origin to modern days and gain an understanding of citizen Potawatomi oral traditions and lifeways. 
Admission is always free. Open Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Visit the Cultural Heritage Center on the web at PottawatomieHeritage.com. Where positive people and radio unite. HealthyLife.net. Welcome back to the last segment of our Indigenous Perspective show on Black Elk with our guest, Damien Costello. And Damien's going to pick up discussing the complex spiritual terrain that Black Elk and his people are living in, in the time around 1890. That's something we can't overemphasize, I think, or can't draw out enough. Uh, when we think about how Black Elk engaged his context, is how dynamic and in flux so much of a cultural tradition and community was, and how many different traditions and groups are are acting in this terrain. So you had, of course, you had the traditional people, the traditional culture that was still there, never went away. It's still here today and uh, coming back stronger. But it was officially publicly outlawed. You know, it's a, an irony of, of our, our nation that we, we say it's founded on religious freedom. And it wasn't until, I believe, 1973 that natives were allowed to fully practice their religious traditions in public. And so Native people, uh, Lakota, are dealing with this. Uh, they can't publicly practice the Sundance, the most public of their ceremonies. But it's said that that was still uh, practiced in those, like, secret canyons of the of Pine Ridge and the other uh, reservations. Black Elk is still able to heal underground and ceremonies go on. Now the, the, the churches are moving in, the different denominations, the Episcopalians were the ones that were supposed to be given control over Pine Ridge. Each uh, agency had a specific church that was supposed to be in power, but uh, Red Cloud and others lobbied for the Jesuits because of their positive interactions with them um, during the Great Sioux War of, 19, of 1868, for example, and after that. They said, well, if we're going to have somebody teach us our kids English and how to live in the modern world, we'll take our chances with them. They seem to be the uh, the least of, of least bad option out there. Um, and, and Lakota people are engaging different churches. So the, the Catholics are there, Episcopalians are there, other churches come in. And for a variety of reasons, Lakota people participate in them because of uh, genuine interest, in part because of the ghost dance. So that's one thing we often don't see is that there's a correlation between ghost dance participation and participation in uh, denominational life. And in part because Lakota people and others saw them as being the same story. And the best illustration of that is the word used to translate Savior and Messiah in the ghost dance. So in the ghost dance, Wanikia, who makes live, is the ghost dance Messiah. And the word for Savior in a Catholic context and other denominations is the same word, Wanikia. These were spaces that um, you could publicly gather and have a spiritual life. 
So even those who maybe had questions or qualifications about their commitment to the ideas of the churches would participate because that's where you could have a spiritual conversation, just where you could engage with the spirits. And people are floating around, engaging multiple communities, changing, participating in many at the same times, looking for a way to construct a whole a vibrant life as best as you can in this very difficult colonial context. Lakota people never gave up doing what they could, using every resource possible to to live, to flourish uh, in this world. So, again, I think we need to remind the readers that there's a whole narrative, cultural narrative out there about the disappearing Indian, um, you know, and it continues today. Um, even with, you know, the revival on many reservations and the great growing interest in indigenous things, um, there's, there's still this notion that this is a, a, a culture that, you know, was tipping on the vanishing point. And the, the picture you're portraying is very, very different, radically different. What, what hope does that offer? What, what avenues forward do you see? Um, you know, Black Elk opening for us today? Well, I would say, you know, the one of the things that has struck me about um, traveling to and living on reservations is how vibrant they are spiritually. It certainly there's a lot of, uh, lot of issues and social problems, but you are having spiritual conversations and, and being uh, almost forced to think about these things in a way that most people don't in their average modern American life. These are vibrant places that challenge you to think deeply about what it means to be human, or if you're indigenous, what it means to be indigenous in that particular context. And so Black Elk is somebody who I think demonstrated the greatest skill, the greatest ability to negotiate all these different traditions, to pick out the best of them, and to do so in an authentic way. Like not just borrowing little pieces here and creating something that doesn't quite hold together, but that I think for him showed the, the, the best of who he was and who we can be. I think he's an example of somebody who leads people through a difficult context in, you know, seeking to recreate what they had, but not be bound by that saying that your future doesn't have to exactly be what was your past, but that doesn't mean you're disconnected from it. A sort yeah. of deep thread of continuity um, in conversation with the spirits that runs through his life, and I think is a great example for us to think about as we face these questions where we are. Yeah, I think one of the things you mentioned in your book um, is that, quote, Lakota tradition is a changing, evolving body of thought and practice. It was never codified in the way that Christianity had been in the Roman Catholic tradition. The Lakota modified and transformed ceremonies to deal with new problems that they were encountering. These new problems demanded new answers from holy men. So it's part of a tradition of evolving in response and creating something new. And I think a theme is that happens with every every dynamic culture is doing this all the time. 
Mm-hmm. And I would add, you know, if there had been a, uh, you know, a medicine person like Black Elk or, you know, a spiritual teacher would have said, Damien, that's a great idea. But maybe you should phrase it this way, that the spirits are calling you and partnering with you and giving you that changing way of being in the world. That you are not alone on that. It's not you who have the primary agency. You have a lot of agency, but we're leading you. And we're calling you along this journey. So we're, we're going to, in our second show, um, pick up this theme because it is, as you said at the very beginning of our presentation, an example of Black Elk being a living presence. This is not a historical figure. This is someone who has still the ability to captivate our imaginations and seize our spirit and animate it today. But that's that's another whole show. I want to thank listeners for tuning in. Damien, I want to thank you for being um, our, our guest. You've been a, a wonderful guide to this wonderful person's life. I hope listeners will take time to give themselves some space to reconnect with their roots and Mother Earth and their ancestral roots and their spiritual roots. Before your busy day distracts you from this moment, I encourage you to take a few minutes to reach out and feel the presence of living flora and fauna, and perhaps that even of your ancestors. Allow yourself to touch their presence, capture that moment, and hold on to it. And if you will, write to me and let me know about your experience. I can be contacted through my website at www.randykritkowski.com, where you can also find transcripts and supplemental materials for all Indigenous perspective shows, including today's. Again, I want to thank Damien Costello for being our guest, and thank you for being our listeners. Miigwech.